From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Republicans have opened another front in the culture war with the slogan, Parental Rights. Not just banning the teaching of critical race theory, whatever that is, now they're campaigning to ban comprehensive sex education. Joan Walsh will explain later in the hour. But first, white evangelicals in the January 6th insurrection. They say God chose Donald Trump to be president. Sarah Posner has our report. That's coming up in a minute. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. In understanding the January 6th insurrection beyond the role of Trump in the White House, we've all focused on white nationalist militias like the Proud Boys. But white evangelicals played a big part on January 6th. For comment, we turn to Sarah Posner. She's the author of the book Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Sarah's a reporter for Type Investigations. Her reporting and analysis of the religious right in Republican politics have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, and The Nation, among other places. Sarah Posner, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Well, the big news of the past week about Trump's actions is that he finally spoke out about the House committee hearings. The media focused understandably on what he said. But we're also interested in where he said it and who his audience was. He spoke about the January 6th hearings for the first time at the annual conference of something called the Faith and Freedom Coalition. What is the Faith and Freedom Coalition? The Faith and Freedom Coalition is a political advocacy organization formed by Ralph Reed, who's a longtime religious right activist. Some of your older listeners might remember him from the time he led the Christian Coalition, and also that he was um, vanquished for a little while from the uh, religious right world after his involvement in a lobbying scandal uh, led by the disgraced lobbyist Jack Abramoff. Um, he was involved with Abramoff in basically double-crossing evangelical groups who were anti-gambling while he was at the same time working um, working for uh, an Indian tribe that wanted to get a casino. But he made a comeback with the Faith and Freedom Coalition in the late 2000s. Um, and now his annual conference is has always been kind of a must attend for, uh, for politicians, for Republican politicians, but particularly those who wanna run for president. Now, I would imagine that Mike Pence is much better known at the Faith and Freedom Coalition as a speaker than Donald Trump. So you might expect some sympathy or defense of, of uh, Mike Pence there. What happened when Trump spoke? 
Well, he um, he lambasted uh, Pence. Well, he lambasted the January 6th committee in general for what has been disclosed in the hearing so far. But he also revived his claims that Pence lacked the courage to do the right thing on January 6th, meaning Pence wouldn't do his bidding and do something illegal by overturning the election results on January 6th. I've been covering, I didn't cover this particular conference. Um, it was in Nashville, whereas typically pre-pandemic, uh, they would have these conferences in Washington, D.C., where I'm based. But I've been covering these kinds of conferences for, for a really long time. Mike Pence, before Trump came on the scene, Mike Pence was much better known to these audiences. He is one of them. He used to go to these conferences and say, I'm a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order, right? He really played his evangelical credentials to these, these kinds of audiences. And he was always seen as a man of God and, and a you know, true patriot and all of that. And the, the submission to Trump by the evangelical movement is basically really complete because here, here's an audience of people who are longtime allies of Mike Pence, and they're basically supporting Trump, lambasting him when Trump had incited a crowd that was chanting, hang Mike Pence. And we learned during the January 6th hearings last week that the mob was 40 feet away from Pence and his wife and daughter. You know, it's really just astonishing. I mean, if anyone else had threatened Mike Pence's life, they would be persona non grata, you would think. Um, but it just cut, papered over. The prominent role uh, played by evangelicals on January 6th started with the Stop the Steal rally that morning. That's where Trump called on his supporters to march on the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell. Evangelicals were in the crowd, but they were also on the stage. Uh, tell us about that, starting with the opening prayer at the Stop the Steal rally. The Florida televangelist Paula White is a longtime friend of Donald Trump and is known as his personal pastor or spiritual advisor. She's always on hand for all of his important rallies and speeches. And so she gave an opening prayer on January 6th. She called on God to give us a holy boldness in this hour. And she also called the election results into question. And she asked God to let the people have the assurance of a fair and a just election. She implored God to let every adversary against democracy, against freedom, against life, against liberty, against justice, against peace, against righteousness be overturned right now in the name of Jesus. So she gave a Jesus-focused imprimatur on Trump's questioning of the election results and his call for his supporters to fight it. And she used the term overturn, overturn mm -hmm. the election. Well, I mean, to be fair, um, that is a term that she uses frequently in her uh, spiritual warfare language, where she calls on God or Jesus to overturn something that's happening in the world that that she believes goes against, uh, you know, biblical values or 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 what she wants politically. So it's 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 a bit of a coincidence, I guess, that it also <laughs> pertains to the election results. But she also could have chosen another word. <laughs> I, I just have one one question about Paula White. Trump has a spiritual advisor. So yes, she's a prosperity televangelist, uh, pretty popular. Um, she has a church in um, in uh, Central Florida. The story goes 
that Trump, when he was at Mar-a-Lago uh, in the early to mid-2000s and was uh, channel surfing, happened upon her television show, became very interested. She's a very uh, svelte, blonde woman. And uh, he invited her, he had his secretary invite her to come see him at Trump Tower. And uh, according to the lore, the rest is history. Okay, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. So back to January 6th. After the mob broke into the Senate chamber, mostly what we remember is that QAnon shaman guy with the horned helmet and the furs, but the mob also paused for a prayer. Tell us about that. Right. So they were ransacking the Senate chamber, looking for evidence of election fraud, looking for evidence of, of senators being traitors and so on. We've all seen the video of them rummaging through Ted Cruz's notebook. And then they paused to pray and they prayed in Jesus's name. And the QAnon shaman also prayed in Jesus's name just to show that this kind of Christian nationalism that the insurrectionists believe that they were carrying out God's will or they were doing this in Jesus's name is was something that kind of permeated the atmosphere that day. I mean, the, the Proud Boys also had prayers before they assaulted the Capitol. And the fact that the QAnon shaman got wrapped up in these Christian nationalist prayers just shows that Christian nationalism sort of transcends Christianity itself to be adopted by people who were expressing themselves supposedly in another religion or even no religion at all on that day. Going back before January 6th, in explaining the planning for the insurrection, We've learned a lot about the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and other white nationalist militias, which have been organized for a long time. But you say there was also a Christian right group that formed to stop the steal, and that they argued in favor of a holy war against an illegitimate state. That group called itself the Jericho March. You say they helped lay the groundwork for the insurrection. Tell us about the Jericho March. So the Jericho March was organized by two people who were at the time working at Trump's uh, Department of Health and Human Services. One uh, did uh, was a contract worker who did uh, public public relations or media work for the Office of Civil Rights um, inside the Department of Health and Human Services, and another was on assignment at the Office of Faith Based and Neighborhood Partnerships at the department. So here were two people on the federal payroll who organized this event um, to gather Christians to pray for the overturning of the election results. They organized a lot of uh, local marches um, and prayer and prayer rallies um, in various states, particularly the states where the vote, where Trump was contesting the vote, but also a very major rally on the National Mall on December 12th, 2020. It featured a lot of um, shall we say, Christian right celebrities um, like uh, Eric Metaxas, who's an author and radio host, who's a big Trump supporter and also very popular with the base. He was the MC. Michael Flynn, uh, who, you know, his uh, Trump's disgraced national security advisor spoke, but they also had speakers from kind of these more radical fringes of the, of the radical right, like Stuart Rhodes, the Oath Keepers founder, and Alex Jones, the conspiracy radio host. It was a, I don't know, like an eight hour rally with all of these speakers. And the idea of calling it the Jericho March was to portray themselves as being like Joshua's army in the Bible, who brought down the walls of Jericho. And so they 
kind of equated the walls around the city of Jericho to being the walls of the deep state. And they were going to make the walls of the deep state fall. And then the what they claimed falsely uh, was the stolen election result would be overturned. And they were very explicitly talking about how they were you know, carrying out God's will in this regard. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Michelle Bachman, that's a name I had not heard for at least a decade until I read your reporting on this. Michelle Bachman, just to remind our listeners, was the sort of crazy evangelical congressional representative from suburban Minneapolis, elected to the House in, I think, 2006, ran for the presidency and the Republican nomination in 2012. But after she came in sixth in the Iowa caucuses with 5% of the vote, she she pulled out of the presidential campaign. Uh, then she ended her congressional career and she sort of disappeared as far as I know. But uh, I learned from reading your reporting that she was inside the Capitol on January 6th. She said she went to the chapel to pray that day. And you found her comments on the radio at the end of that day. Tell us about Michelle Bachman on January 6th. Michelle Bachman most definitely did not disappear from the perspective of Christian right activists uh, since the time that she ended her presidential run in 2012. She is a frequent speaker on, on you know, the speaking circuit. She appears at conferences all the time. Uh, she's a frequent radio uh, guest and not disappeared at all. And she is actually now the dean of the School of Government at Regent University, the Christian university that was founded by the televangelist Pat Robertson. So that's a lot to think about that she's the dean of a school of government. In any case, on January 6th, she went on a, on a live stream prayer call that's hosted by Jim Garlow, who's a Christian right activist most known for his um, campaign against uh, uh, marriage equality in California. So when she spoke on that prayer call that evening, she told the, the participants in the prayer call that the people she saw at the Capitol were the kind of people that we were with, the nicest, friendliest, happiest. It was like a family <laughs> reunion. It was incredible. It was wonderful. This didn't look like anything like the Trump crowd or the prayer warriors, the prayer warriors being the people who were inspired by the Jericho marches to go and pray outside the Capitol. So Michelle Bachman... Uh, reporting on her experience of being inside the Capitol on January 6th. This has been your Minnesota Moment, news from my hometown of St. Paul, a special feature of this broadcast. <laughs> there have been some white evangelical leaders who denounced the insurrection, and let's give let's let's not forget about them. I, I read that at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting, I think it was last year in Nashville, there had been a resolution prepared to, quote, denounce the Capitol insurrection as inconsistent with faithful Christian citizenship. It was pulled from, from a vote. It had been drafted by a Texas pastor named Bart Barber, and Bart Barber was elected head of the Southern Baptist Convention at their recent meeting in Anaheim just a, a week or two ago. So he's very much critical of, of the January 6th insurrection. And Bart Barber is not the only one. That's right. Shortly after January 6th, when I was doing my reporting on um, the Jericho March and the aftermath of the Jericho March, I spoke with Robert Jeffress, who is a Southern Baptist pastor in Dallas, a very prominent megachurch pastor who's very close to Trump. Now, he denounced the violence that took place at the Capitol that day, but he also hedged it 
by saying that Trump is entitled to his opinion about whether the election was stolen. Jeffers himself does not believe the election was stolen. He believes that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States. But this is a very potent example of how Trump is is given a pass by the evangelicals who support him. So some have been notably silent um, in the year and a half since January 6th about about it at all. Some have denounced the violence, but almost all of them stopped short of saying Trump was the cause of the violence or saying Trump contributed to or incited the violence. They will not go that far. And the fact that Jeffress said, well, Trump is entitled to his opinion about whether the election was stolen will just be like a, a perpetual pass for Trump to make up lies, right? Because if you're entitled to your opinion about something that is an indisputable fact, you could, you could never say that Trump was lying about something. So there have been at least a few prominent evangelical leaders who put at least some distance between themselves and the insurrection. But we also know something about, let's call it the mass of evangelicals view of the insurrection. There's been some polling on that. This is after people have seen how violent and anti-democratic the January 6th insurrection was. Mm -hmm. What do we know about white evangelicals' opinions about what happened on January 6th? Well, again, they're unlikely um, to blame January 6th on Donald Trump. Um, Only 26% of white evangelicals uh, blame Trump for the violence, um, according to polling that uh, took place in September of 2021. Um, So we don't know yet whether the January 6th committee hearings might be changing some minds, but that was true, you know, eight months or so after the insurrection. And um, the only group, this is according to polling from Public Religion Research Institute, the only group a majority of white evangelicals blame for the January 6th insurrection um, is liberals or left-wing activists. (laughs) (laughs) Pardon me for chuckling here, but what's the logic of that position? Well, there's no logic to it, but I think you have to understand the media and social media bubble that a lot of white evangelicals operate in. Um, This is what they've heard. This is what they've heard in their Facebook feeds. This is what they've heard on Fox News. Uh, This is what they've heard um, on other Christian media. Uh, So they're not operating in the reality-based world in terms of the facts that have been uncovered about January 6th and and its root causes. And so a lot of this polling reflects the conspiracies and disinformation that they are, that they're immersed in. So big picture, everybody wants to know why, why would religious people support Donald Trump, even his illegal and unconstitutional acts? He's a man who seems to us at least to defy Christian values with everything he does and says. There is a conventional answer to this, which is that evangelical support Trump, despite his offenses to Christian morality, in exchange for his promising anti-abortion judicial appointments. And Trump fulfilled his part of the deal, and so they support him. But you say white evangelical support for Trump is based on far more than that deal. What do you mean? Well, white evangelicals 
don't really like living in a pluralistic democracy. They would rather live in a country where, in their view, the government is guided by biblical values or a biblical worldview, which they believe includes no LGBTQ rights, no reproductive rights, um, no separation of church and state. And so because Trump was willing to stomp all over, not just the democratic institutions like our elections, but also democratic values. And he conveyed that in every campaign speech and literally every time he opened his mouth, he would be saying something offensive or racist. And what they liked about that was that he was sticking it to the liberals or he was pushing back against the woke mob or he was, you know, letting everybody know that he wouldn't be, kicked, uh, you know, pushed around by political correctness. And that was something that they really liked about him. He wasn't to them sticking his finger in the wind and seeing which way the political winds were blowing. He was just letting them do what they wanted, restoring the Christian heritage of America like they wanted, they had wanted previous Republican presidents to do. And so in a nutshell, they liked him because he's an authoritarian. Um, And so it didn't matter whether he went against a lot of the biblical values that they claimed to hold dear. In fact, many of them said as justification that sometimes God chooses an unlikely leader to lead a nation at an important, crucial juncture in its history. And God chose Donald Trump. Sarah Posner, she's the author of the book, Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. It's just been published in paperback with a new afterword about evangelicals and the January 6th insurrection. Thank you, Sarah. This was great. Thank you, John. Republicans have opened another front in the culture war with the slogan, parental rights. Not just banning the teaching of critical race theory, whatever that is, but now they're campaigning to ban comprehensive sex education. With Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis in the lead, Florida adopted what they called a parental rights in education bill, which places restrictions on teaching or even mentioning sexual orientation and gender identity, especially in grades K to three. We call it the don't say gay bill. And it's not just Florida. Joan Walsh has been covering the grassroots activities of this new movement. Joan, of course, is the national affairs correspondent for the nation. She's been an on-air political analyst at CNN and MSNBC, and she produced the wonderful 2020 documentary, The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. We talked about it here. She's also a former editor-in-chief of Salon and author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? We reached her today in New York City. Joan Walsh, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, for starters, what is comprehensive sex education? How is it different from the old time sex ed we are familiar with? It's hard to say that there's one definition, which is part of the problem. But in general, what it adds to what even, you know, older folks like me got, you know, we got like a 
a film, the boys and the girls were separated. We got some basic anatomy and basic birds and the bees. What this movement has gradually added with the onset of the AIDS crisis, it added a lot of attention to condoms, contraception, just sexual safety. And, and in recent years, it's added attention to LGBTQ issues, as well as, and this is the part that really bothers me about the movement against it, as well as even in the early grades, information about what constitutes abuse, what you should say no to, what makes you comfortable or uncomfortable, what to tell adults about. And so they've taken this concept that was actually de designed to protect children in many ways and twisted it uh, into something that is supposedly hurting children. And that's what galls me the most, I would have to say. One of the grassroots campaigns you report on is in Worcester, Mass, where some school board candidates ran under the slogan, opt out of pornographic sex education. Tell us about that. Well, there's a movement there and uh, a woman, a mother uh, by the name of Chanel Susie decided to run for school committee and, and make this movement part of her platform, central to her platform. What, what happens, John, is that people take suggested curriculum ideas or resources uh, and twist something that even liberal parents might raise their eyebrows at uh, into something that's mandated. They depict it all as pornography. They depict it all as sexualizing children. And that's what happened in Worcester. And this woman who has a very interesting and, and pretty hard life, who's a teen mom herself, who seems like she would support comprehensive sex ed. She lost, but her crusade goes on. And what they're doing is trying to get Worcester parents to quote, opt out because you can. I mean, in pretty much every place I'm aware of, parents can opt out. You know, your kids get sent home a, a message. We're, we're doing this kind of sex ed. If you want to take them out, you can take them out. They moved the number of Worcester families opting out from eight to about 3,400, and it's still wow. rising. Wow. So that's, you know, that's her definition of victory right now, even though her actual campaign, you know, ended in failure. And you report that at least 30 places around the country are considering legislation that would limit LGBT representation in the curriculum and put limits on school clubs. Uh, how much of this is genuinely local and homegrown and how much is coming from the right-wing organizations and foundations that we know about? That we know and love, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's really hard to say. I would never say that there is not genuine parental discomfort uh, with some of these changes. And sometimes they are not publicized or or explained well enough. Let's Let's allow for that. But there's also an unbelievable crusade by, you know, our old friends at the Heritage Foundation, the Dick and Betsy DeVos Foundation, uh, focus on the family, Family Research Council, et cetera, et cetera, to sort of turn their old preoccupation with especially gay rights um, and gay marriage into this new concern for sexualizing children. Uh, grooming children. It's it's huge. It's hugely funded. It, Massachusetts has uh, Worcester even, but Massachusetts has a not grassroots, but a you know astroturfed 
uh, a family alliance that fought sex ed. Um, Worcester has a, a chapter of it. Um, this is going on all over the country. And if you go online, there's a stopcse.org. I didn't get into the, these weeds deeply enough, but you'll let me. Um, you go to stopcse.org and you find exactly how to foment a backlash to this kind of curriculum. You find, you know, information that it distorts what's going on, first of all, but then this is how you talk about it. This is what you do. This is how you approach your school board. These are the curriculum uh, ideas you should be promoting. And it's really insidious and it's incredibly well-funded. And in The Nation magazine, you report on some fascinating research about what we have found about the effects and the consequences of this new comprehensive sex education. It's much more effective than the old abstinence only, even in promoting abstinence in some cases. I mean, there are many, many respected studies that show it postpones the age at which teenagers, whatever we want to call them, commence sexual behavior, if that's something you're concerned about. It lowers rates of teen pregnancy, it lowers rates of sexually transmitted diseases. And there's also, because this curriculum is relatively new, the, the research is not quite as robust, but the research that exists shows that it helps kids avoid bullying, avoid sexual abuse, that the, the lessons surrounding bodily autonomy and, and sexual harm uh, and ideas of consent, whether you're a young man or a young woman, these are also taking root and these are also helping straight kids and, and kids that you don't necessarily think are at risk for these things. So it, it's really perverse, the insistence on abstinence only because it's not effective and more, a more comprehensive approach really is. You write in The Nation about a lesson plan called Pink, Blue and Purple that has become a target. Tell us about pink, blue, and purple? Well, again, it's one of those suggested lesson plans. Nobody requires it. Obviously, places teach it, and I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't. So, so it's out there, but this is what the antis have really focused on. And basically, 99% of it is a, a, an exercise in preventing sex stereotyping. So it starts with, you know, should you, oh, somebody, so-and-so had a, a boy, should you send them a pink uh, congratulations card or a blue one? Well, here's why neither matters. Are there girl toys and boy toys? No. Are there girl jobs and boy jobs? No. And then it, it, the, the controversial language has to do with something like, you know, you might feel like even though you have girl parts, you feel like a boy, vice versa. Uh, and this is driving people wild. This is just, even though it's not suggesting anything happen as a result of that, it's just acknowledging that some kids, even as early as first grade, have a sense either that maybe they're trans or they just don't, at that point in life, feel like identifying with whatever the stereotypes about their gender is. So it's not like it's it's preaching, you know, everyone should transition or anyone should transition. It's just acknowledging the questions that, that kids have about their sexuality. But this is what's driven uh, a lot of the reaction. This is what they can really pull out. Um, and I have to say, 
so much of this has to do with the trans panic that we're seeing in so many in so many venues and it's it's really sad because it's making a difficult situation for many kids and families a lot worse and there's an even darker side to this movement the suggestion that people who teach comprehensive sex ed could be groomers or even pro-pedophile, a term we never even heard before, you know, a right. year or two ago. Where is all this coming from? Well, it's coming from a lot of places. I mean, the first time I saw it was Ron DeSantis's communications director uh, suggesting that anyone who uh, opposed their sick anti-sex ed bill might be a groomer or a pro-pedophile. And the only reason to, to oppose such a bill would be that you want to make children willing victims of sexual abuse. And as I said before, this is a precise perversion, an inversion of what's actually going on where the, you know, this curriculum is designed to help children say no. Um, then, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the, the QAnon crazy in Congress picked it up. Other people have picked it up. Um, and it's become a real thing. It's become, you know, I didn't, I don't think I even knew what a groomer was, uh, yeah. except the one I take, you know, my labradoodle to see <laughs> every six <laughs> weeks, you know, seriously. And it's like, oh, right, that was an old term. It's old term mainly, you know, mainly applied to gay men. And it's so destructive. And we, you know, we're seeing an uptick in at least threats. So far, I'm not aware of any actual violence carried out against teachers, but we're seeing a lot of threats and it's scary. And how potent do you think this campaign against sex ed is working out to be for Republican com candidates compared to the campaign against critical race theory last year? Well, you know, you've got one of the big advocates of the critical race theory panic, the non-existent critical race theory, you know, that isn't taught in K-12. Christopher Rufo, this mediocre right-wing intellect who just gets a lot of wingnut welfare money, he was the Mr. You know, anti-CRT panic. He switched over to sex ed and the grooming uh, BS uh, and told the New York Times it's because actually sexuality resonates even more with people than the fears of critical race theory. So when you're a grifter, you move on to your next grift. And so we're, we're seeing some of the same people transition, so to speak, in <laughs> this crusade. Um, and it's really sick. You report the research that shows students who get comprehensive sex ed are more likely to report sexual abuse if they experience it, that they become sexually active later, that they're more likely to use protection when they do become sexually active, that they're more likely to avoid pregnancy and STIs. I know that you talk to some of the grassroots activists in Worcester about these findings. What do they say in response? They don't believe them. They don't, they don't believe, I mean, this is where, this is where we live now, John, right? We, you know, they have their own set of facts. So one of the people I talked to was like, oh, all those studies are by Planned Parenthood. Well, they're not. Some are, um, some are by from the Guttmacher Institute, which used to be affiliated with Planned Parenthood, but many of them are independent, either by independent agencies or independent academic researchers. Uh, so they just say, we don't believe it. We think, you know, fake news, all, you know, alternative facts. Uh, and, and that's what's really dispiriting. It just feels like 
I don't know, even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you might have a chance to push back on some of these arguments with, with science, but science doesn't matter. Science isn't science anymore to these people. Just like you have crazy climate denialism, you have crazy sex ed denialism. And, and uh, I don't know exactly how we combat it. One more thing. There's a history to all of this, which you remind us of in your piece for The Nation. The most fascinating part to me was about Reagan's Surgeon General, the name will be familiar to our older listeners, C. Everett Koop. C. Everett Koop was a very conservative uh, physician. He was Reagan's Surgeon General, but when the AIDS crisis was really growing, uh, and Ronald Reagan was looking away from it for many years, C. Everett Koop came out in favor of the use of condoms and said, sure, we should teach abstinence, but we also have to teach the use of condoms if we want to save lives. And that was profound. But at the same time, I guess go going back to 1986, uh, facts didn't matter either because I thought as I was reading the history, well, maybe this leads to kind of meeting of the minds between the two sides, because there were there have been two sides since the 50s um, in terms of sex ed. It's been controversial and the right has just not, you know, not liked it. But OK, if we can save lives, maybe we can compromise. We could teach both because even today, a lot most comprehensive programs teach abstinence. Abstinence is the way to not get pregnant and not get STIs. It, it is pretty darn reliable. Um, but if you're not going to, and most kids are not going to, and young adults are not going to, here are other options. So yes, C. Everett Coop, conservative guy, had a funny beard, um, came out for condoms, but it didn't really move the needle. Joan Walsh, her report, The Backlash Against Sex Ed, appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. You can read it online at thenation.com. Joan, thanks for this work and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>